And we spent the next few weeks traveling through Nepal and we would stop in different villages and this beautiful boy ran up to me. He was about five years of age. So I unpacked my backpack and I gave him a candy and literally about a minute later, his little sister ran up. And I was just about to give her a candy as well, but before I had a chance to, he bit half of his and he gave it to her. And then he bit, sucked on his half, and he took it out of his mouth, he put it into his wrapper, and he put it into his pocket. And I realized that he was so happy, and he had so little, and I had so much, and I was so unhappy. And I made a decision in that moment that my work from there was going to be all about helping people find their passion, find happiness, find joy, and be more successful in whatever it is that they desire. Welcome to the Manage Self Lead Others Leadership Podcast with Nina Sunday for experienced and aspiring people managers. This show will help you explore ways to become a more intentional leader. Each episode, host Nina Sunday speaks with some of the brightest business minds on the planet who share a passion to elevate and transform team culture. Workplace culture hides in plain sight. Is yours flourishing? Join the movement to make your workplace a better place to work. Are you ready? Because it's time to manage self, lead others. Born in India and growing up in Australia, Shivani Gupta qualified as an engineer before completing an MBA and working as a senior manager for Australia's BHP Billiton, one of the largest mining companies in the world. Author of seven books, including Passion at Work, which helps managers create a happy team. This episode, Shivani shares a story about a life-changing trip to Nepal, finding her true passion that changed the trajectory of her life. Having owned several million-dollar wellness businesses and managing large teams, Shivani is now a keynote speaker and mentor. Welcome, Shivani Gupta. Sometimes managers don't build capability because they think I've just paid you to do the job I've paid you to do and they don't think their responsibility is to grow people's careers. At the same time, how can a manager find the balance between supporting high performers and then managing the non-performers and the ones that are high maintenance and take your focus? You know, the mental health of leaders is such a big issue at present and so you know, making sure and that leaders doesn't need to be the CEO, but it's also the people within it. So the managers and the leaders that they've got working for that. And that often also helps with that driving and productivity. And that's why organisations are having to provide more and more mental health support um, and conversations around that to get more productivity from employees as well. Yeah. And in my experience, Nina, most of the people I'm speaking to, managers and leaders and owners of businesses, um, the number one word, and they've done been done some surveys done at the end of 2022, the number one word that's coming up is exhausted. And so people are feeling burnt out. They're feeling that their resilience, even if they were very resilient, um, resilient is being feeling a bit worn out. And um, they're saying, look, I've just been giving so much of myself to my team, to myself, if I'm a parent, to my children. And um, that's great, but I've been just giving and giving and giving. And I feel um, very tired and I feel exhausted and I'm not sure I've got the resilience or the juice to keep going. And um, so I think organisations need to be really aware of that and that's one of the reasons 
that we are seeing people leave, their values are being realigned, their passions are being realigned, and I believe that people are starting to leave organisations for that because they're saying, look, I'm not sure I can give it what I've given it in the past or I'm not actually sure this is my passion and I think perhaps I can live more simply and um, and do that. So I think engagement and retention of your high performers is um, a very big issue at the moment and will continue to be, uh, I believe, in the next three to five years as well. So it sounds like to, uh, informing uh, any anyone in an organisation how to maintain their own personal resilience should be top of mind at the moment. Would that be right? Absolutely, and also giving them tools and um, techniques and strategies to be able to cope with that. I mean, you know, whether it's um, organisations... Uh, even linking people up into apps that can help people have better sleep, um, have better rest uh, overnight. Um, you know, some organisations are starting to provide some financial seminars and, you know, linkages into financial planners. So what are the different stresses that people have? And traditionally, employers would have said, well, that's not my business, that's their business. But they realise that that well-being and the holistic well-being of their employees is so important that they really start to provide some strategies around that for people well the the anybody in an organization their whole life has to work for them to bring the best version of themselves to work so uh i think a little bit of financial literacy can go a long way uh mental health literacy and of course are there any danger signs of uh that managers need to look out for if they think a a, a direct report is perhaps be a little bit more than just a bit exhausted. Maybe they've uh, got some actual mental health uh, issue that they that they might not even be aware of themselves. Yeah, look, absolutely. There's some very definitive signs. One of those signs is obviously when people start to take a lot of sick leave or a lot of annual leave that's unplanned, um, and just looking at the you know the data and the um, the stats around that. The other way is to also look at how well people are showing up in meetings and on projects. And, you know, some people where you know that they're highly energetic sort of people, the energy's down, they feel very flat. So I think it's really important to also equip managers and leaders to have those skills to be able to pick up those signs of, you know, constant fatigue, tiredness, low in energy, lots of absenteeism or being there and that this notion of presenteeism where we see people arrive at work, but they're not very present. And picking up some of those signs and having a conversation, you know, the simple conversation of, you know, look, are you okay in terms of what's happening for you? Um, and then finding out and digging a little bit deeper and then connecting them to certain services, both inside the organisation and outside, depending on what you have available. And one of the ongoing themes of Manage Self, Lead Others podcast is elevating team culture. And it seems to me that there might the old old think was, well, we're just here to get a job done. But actually, we're here to get a job done and demonstrate care and kindness and great interpersonal communication uh, amongst all our fellow, fellow travellers. What's your thoughts on that? I believe that caring for staff, more in fact, I just wrote a blog post about this last week, caring for your staff is a secret that managers and leaders need to do. And people say, well, how much care? And the question I always answer, because I get that question a lot, Shivani, how much do I care? And I believe that, 
you know, caring, you know, is almost expected from people. So whether it's having flexibility in hours, whether depending on the type of business that you run, um, providing them that understanding where there's something gone wrong, whether it's their children or ageing parents or somebody's sick in their family or themselves and having that. Now, sometimes that caring, there's an expectation from some employees that you're going to be their full-time counsellor. That's over-caring and I always say that you've gone too far and then, you know, managers and leaders that need to step back from that. But caring is a secret that I think every manager and leader needs to learn and find their boundaries of caring more but not overstepping the boundaries. Mm. So what's the secret then to creating happy team members? Well, there's there's a number of secrets. One of the things is to really um, start to understand what people's passions are. When global surveys have been done, Nina, one of the things that they found is that in survey after survey of hundreds of thousands of people show that 87% of people are dispassionate about their work. They don't really enjoy their work. And so that's a very large part. And one of the things that expectations we have when we are um, managers and leaders and running businesses is that we expect that well, we've given them a job and we're paying them money and they need to be able to do their work. But if they're not really passionate about their work, then one of the roles we have as leaders and managers is to work out how to tap into their passions. And even though at the interview or in their CV, they said absolutely they were so passionate about this job, within six weeks, six months, it's very evident that perhaps they're not so passionate about it. And one of the skills I believe that leaders and managers need to have is to be able to say work may not be their number one passion. And that is actually okay. You have to work out where work sits, and I call it a hierarchy of passions. And so work might be number three out of the seven areas of passions that I speak about. And that's okay. Say, for example, their family or their health might be their number one passion. The trick for managers and leaders is to work out how to tap in and know that it's okay for their work not to be their top passion. For example, one of the businesses that I ran, I had three key leaders that were basically my operations hands-on managers that were running, um, you know, 95% plus of the operations. One of them, their family was number one passion. One of them, work was their number one passion, and one of them, health was their number one passion. So rather than expect everybody, work is my number one passion, and um, rather than expect everybody to be like me, it was about saying, how do I feed their passions? So the one that did the family, she went to a four-day week, and as a result of that, she stayed working for me for seven years. Um, And if I had forced her to work five days, then I would have lost her within the first 12 to 18 months. The person that was their health was their number one focus um, and their passion. I paid for their um, gym membership to the best gym that was available in the city. And I paid for that, which cost me about $900 a year. And we made that part of that. Rather than give that to everybody, I tried to really tap into their passions. And she loved the fact that she had a bit of flexibility to be able to really address and work on her number one passion, which then fed her into being more productive and a better manager in the business as well. Oh, isn't that? That's a smart way to do it, Shivani. I'm very impressed by that one. Um, How can we measure happiness? That's a very good question. So there's um, there's some very formal ways of measuring happiness. And so there's a lot of different places that you can find if you literally Googled or you can send me an email and I can send you a link to a few things. There's a lot of ways to get a pulse survey. And really a pulse survey to me is a little bit like you measure your pulse to see your heartbeat and make sure that you're alive. 
So pulse surveys can be very quick surveys that people can do within one to three minutes. It can be on apps. It can be a quick email that's sent out. And it can give the organisation a very quick pulse of how people are going in terms of their happiness. And you can measure happiness using those pulse surveys. The other way is a little bit more informally, and that is, for example, one great way is when you're starting every meeting is to find out how people are feeling. And one of the things that we are not very good at, we are very good at thinking, but we're not often good at tapping into our feelings and then expressing them. So one of the ways that I always suggest to people is when you're starting a meeting, start off with a one-word feeling. There is a feeling chart. We always think feelings might be good, great, not so good, terrible, but there's actually over 150 different types of feelings. And if you had a feelings chart available in your meetings, people could actually look at that and over a period of time, they could start learning how they're tapping their feelings. They could talk about disappointment. They could talk about vulnerability. They could talk about that they're feeling really sad or upset. And that gives an opportunity for managers and leaders to understand what's happening at the beginning of the meeting and how well they're going and finishing off the meeting with a one-word feeling word. And people might shift their feelings from feeling disconnected to feeling more inspired or connected, or that becomes a one-on-one conversation and a follow-up for that manager or leader to go, okay, that person's not doing so great. I'm just going to reach out to them and see how they're doing. So there's some formal and informal ways of checking with people how they're going. That's fantastic because if you do notice a trend with one person choosing on the more negative or, uh, you know, pessimistic uh, emotions, they probably need a one-on-one to to cover off on that. When you talk about um, mental health for leaders, you talk about adopting science-based techniques. What are some of those, please, Shivani? Well, one of the one of the first things is meditation. And a lot of people I come across say, oh, meditation is so difficult. It doesn't need to be maybe just very simple breathing technique. And one of the breathing techniques I teach people, I just qualified as a meditation teacher, is simply using this rule called 369, where you breathe in for three, you hold for six, and you breathe out for nine. And that's that's as simple as that. There's hundreds of different techniques finding it. Science has shown us that we need to meditate for a minimum of 12 minutes. Um, So you could meditate for five or six minutes um, and it doesn't, MRI scans and other scans show that it doesn't have quite the same benefits. Now, you won't want to start with 12 minutes. You might start off with one minute and you then build that practice up a little bit. The other technique is journaling. And journaling has again shown that when we give gratitude for what we have, it brings us more joy and we also get very clear about you know, it makes gets us into a better mental health state. So giving joy for little things, whether it's your home or your family or relationships or the money that you have. Somebody was speaking to me the other day that they're working on money and they said one of the best ways to attract money is to thank it every time you spend it. Thank it every time it comes in. So giving gratitude for saying, wow, my client paid my invoice. How fabulous is that? Thank you, client. Or how fantastic. I've just gone out for a beautiful breakfast and a coffee and I've just spent $38 and how great that I can actually spend that money. And so gratitude creates um, more mental happiness and emotional happiness because that's in, in there doing that. And the other one that's really important is exercise. So exercise has shown us over many decades that when we do, even if it's a light walk, we release our cortisol, we release our stress, and we start to create more oxytocin. We start to become better at managing whatever it is that we need to do. We sleep better. So there's a lot of science and evidence that shows that when we do those three or four things, they have a massive impact on our 
um, on our day. And I always say to people, do a 10, 10, 10. Like I do 10 minutes of journaling a day. I do 12 minutes of meditation a day. And I do 10 minutes of reading a day. That's my 32 minutes. And then I do a minimum of 30 minutes of a walk or a yoga or a stretch, but something for 30 minutes a day. So that 60 minutes a day is absolutely non-negotiable. And I have to do it because my kids are young and uh, they get up fairly early. So I do it before they wake up. And my ritual, as I call it, is already done before they wake up. So you wrote the book Passionate Work. Are you saying that you've identified seven passions? I have. So some people call them different things, but I've identified that there's essentially seven areas of life and seven areas of passion. And again, you can interchange some of the words, but they are essentially your work. Or if you're a business owner, that would be, you know, your business. That is your family. Um, that is your friends. And you ship, you, you create that difference between friends. Some friends might be like family, but you have uh, friendships. And over time, sometimes we're more passionate about family and more passionate about friends. Um, there's money, and some people like calling that wealth or investment in terms of what you do. Um, there's obviously your health, and you want to be able to sometimes even divide that up into, so, for example, meditation, people say, is that part of my health? Or, you know, some people meditate for spiritual reasons or religious reasons, so, um, you know, um, spirituality. And so when you look at all those seven areas, one of the things is you consciously say, what do I want to master for this year? So, for example, for me, for 2023, Nina, my top uh, three passions are my work, my family, and my mental. And so mental for me is learning and reading um, and I've said, I always set a goal in terms of how many books I want to read, um, how many podcasts I want to consume. And so then because you get very clear about mastering those, the other four I still have to do, but I might not be able to master them. And so I always say to people, consciously choose what you want to master. And then you get very clear about how you're going to do that. When it comes to even just coming up with a technique, I always say to people, have it, have a science-based do the little bit of research on it, talk to some people or refer to a book and say, hey, I've been reading this and I wanted to try and try this thing. And this, by the way, has been researched based on, you know, 10,000 people from this. So when you give people some evidence rather than I've just thought of it um, and I just thought it'd be a great spur of the moment, that helps. You are going to, despite how much um, information uh, you and research that you've done, you are always going to get people that are non-believers. It doesn't matter what technique. It doesn't have to be breath work. It could actually be project management tool that you're putting into your business. They'll always be the naysayers. Now, change management and some of the books that I've read talk about, it varies between 20 and 30% of people that irrespective of how great what you're trying to position as a leader or manager, they'll always be between 20 and 30% of people that will just go, uh, whatever, or I'm not that interested or still be disengaged at the end of your great ability to be able to do that. And it's really important as a leader not to keep focusing on that 20% of the people. Mm. It's really important as a leader to shift your energy towards the 80% of the people who get it, who get the vision, who want to make the difference and who really want to implement some of the things that you're speaking about. And some brave organisations, global organisations, have actually named their culture along those lines. And I'm thinking of Accor, which is the global hospitality group. They've created what's called a heartist culture, as in heart. And it's as simple as, just as you as you suggested, 
at the start of every meeting, make sure you talk a little bit about your own personal life and there's an opportunity to chat. Not to waste time, but they they consider it investing time to save time. I, that's such a, I, um, I just think that's a beautiful uh, way to do that. And also I think it's also saying we recognise and see you as humans. Um, yeah. You're not just here to do your little piece of work and then leave and be paid. People need more than that. And with a global shortage of, you know, skilled people, we actually need to be doing things differently to be able to say whether it's the hardest culture like a core or other places that are going, I genuinely, I can't just do it to get a tick in the box. I genuinely need to come up with something in my culture that people resonate with and they go, yeah, people here, I feel cared for, I've taken, you know, and, and I know that people that have been um, try to be poached from different organisations who haven't taken those jobs up, even though they've been offered more money, because they feel fabulous in the culture that they're in and they feel really happy. You know, money is not always the number one factor when people are looking at jumping jobs. But when your culture is great, people then go, actually, I, I love working here. And even though the money is more and that would help me have a maybe a slightly bigger holiday, I think I'm going to stay put because I really love being here. And that's the kind of culture that you want to create um, as leaders that so the people want to stay with you. And, and while they're there, they want to be highly engaged and do lots of great things. And, of course, some of the people listening uh, to this podcast episode might be a middle manager or an aspiring manager, and they may want to try some of these uh, new behaviours that we're describing, you're describing, but the, the senior leadership is a bit ho-hum about it and isn't really supportive. What what can you suggest they say to actually uh, gain acceptance from uh, from top down? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. You know, I speak a lot about the circle of influence um, and it's such a simple and a very old model that's been around for hundreds of years and I literally draw a circle and you write the circle of influence in it. And your influence um, as a middle manager or an aspiring middle manager may be, look, I really want to introduce this to my team. So I would, that's within your circle of influence. So I would say, let's start off with your team. Let's start introducing it. Let's do a trial and error, see what works. What doesn't work, you discard it. What works, let's repeat it, rinse and repeat it. And let's keep doing more and more of that. You can sometimes start to do that and then share some of those results with your senior managers and say, look, we've been doing this in our team. It may not work for every team, but I wanted to share this um, this about, you know, with you. My other experience is, um, Nina, is, and I'm generalising a little bit here, is that middle managers, one of their roles is not only to be whatever the job that you do, whatever the team that you're leading, whatever industry you are in, yes, it is to lead people, but it's so important to manage people up. And it's a real skill that you need to um, look at. And I call that marketing. Like people talk about marketing and businesses and that's marketing, but it's also marketing of yourself and your team. And so it's a real skill that managers need to learn. Um, I talk about that a lot. Um, There are some very simple ways. And one of the the simplest um, ways is knocking on somebody's door, forwarding them an email when you've had a success in your team and saying, hey, just thought I'd let you know we had a great win. Joe did this in my team and we got this fabulous result. I thought I'd share it. Regards, Shivani. That was it. You know what's good about that, Shivani? That's making your work visible. And I think a lot of people think that if they just work hard and do a good job, it'll automatically be recognised. No, you have to promote yourself and promote your results, your good results. 
You have to promote. You have to learn how to do that. And, again, I remember my dad, who's one of the smartest people I know. He's a, he's an engineer. His career stalled because what he was good at was things doing very well technically. What he was not so good at was marketing himself. And he also came from that era he didn't think he needed to market himself, whereas people who were not so good technically, they weren't silly, but they were not as smart as him um, intellectually but were better at marketing themselves. I saw their career skyrocket, and I've seen this over and over again, and I say that to people. Also with senior leaders, data is wisdom, and wisdom is what you want to present to people. So gathering the data in terms of saying, look, here's the stats, here's the data, here's what we've achieved, it's not a hearsay. You want to present evidence to people that are higher up and evidence can't be fought with. Um, so when you say, look, we've tried this and this is what's happened or when we've done this, this is the engagement or we've had very few people resign, uh, you know, our turnover has been very low because we've done these things, then you've got evidence and data to be able to present to some of those senior leaders that, you know, perhaps aren't listening um, and the other thing is there's always one or two people, it might not be a direct report, but other senior leaders that you get along very well with and you have a natural rapport with, also utilising them as a sounding board on different things and saying, look, you know, I'm trying to get this through to my, my, through to my boss. I just wanted to run this idea by you. What do you think? Getting their feedback and then learning how to market that to your, um, to your one-up, to your two-up um, and to your senior leaders is a really key part of continuing to grow your career. Thanks, Shivani, and, and we're, we're sort of coming to the close and I've known you over many years because we're both in the state of Queensland, Australia. Um, tell us why you do what you do. Um, I My why is I really want to see businesses be really, really successful. I see so many businesses that fall apart with so much risk. I see so many people that are unhappy and um, for me, Nina, um, my journey started when um, I grew up in India and I moved to Australia at the age of 11. And I had parents that didn't have a lot of money. So education was really important. So I followed the right steps. I became an engineer. I did my MBA. I got a corporate job. I got a senior corporate job and I got more and more senior. But by the time I was 30, I was in a, a very senior job working uh, and traveling globally. And then I had the opportunity to go to Nepal. I'd already cancelled my trip to Nepal four times. And um, I thought, no, this time it was just after September 11. And I checked with the Australian authorities and it was safe for me to travel to Nepal. So I went. And when I arrived in Nepal, I was the only person on this tour. Every other person had cancelled their trip. So I was the only person on this tour and I had a, and a, I had a tour guide. I had a cook and I had a Sherpa and we spent the next few weeks travelling through Nepal and we would stop in different villages and I have always loved kids even since I was a teenager and one of the things somebody had shared with me was that if you carry these bag of candies or lollies, you know, which are like one cent each, then often when kids run up to you, you can give them that and that's a really lovely way to interact with them. So I would carry, I was carrying about 100 of these lollies in my backpack and I would stop at different villages and little kids would run up to me and I would give them one of these candies and they would, you know, wave at me and say hello and run off really, really gorgeously. One particular day we got to this village and we stopped and we, I was just resting under a tree and I was grabbing my drink bottle and this beautiful boy ran up to me 
He was about five years of age and if I close my eyes, I can always, always see his face, so beautiful, such brown skin and white teeth. And um, he was smiling at me and I thought, oh, he knows that I'm a tourist and he knows that I'm probably carrying a candy. So I unpacked my backpack and I gave him a candy and literally about a minute later, his little sister ran up. I'm pretty sure it was his little sister because they had the same feature. She was maybe three, three and a half. And I was just about to give her a candy as well. And I thought she's going to ask me for one. But before I had a chance to, he bit half of his and he gave it to her. And then he bit, sucked on his half and he took it out of his mouth. He put it into his wrapper and he put it into his pocket. And then I just sat there and I cried and I cried and I cried. And I realised that he was so happy and he had so little and I had so much and I was so unhappy. And I made a decision in that moment that my work from there was going to be all about helping people find their passion, find happiness, find joy and be more successful in whatever it is that they desire. And within a week of coming back, I had quit my big corporate job and um, I had quit my relationship that I was very unhappy in and I started on that path. And that was 20 years ago. And very uh, interestingly, I'm speaking to you on this podcast today and this Saturday I go back to Nepal. And I haven't been back for 20 years. So my husband and kids are really worried. They're like, so 20 years ago you went and you quit your job and you quit your relationship. What's going to happen now when you come back after this trip? And I'm doing, I'm going for a conference, but I'm going to go do some volunteer work there. And I'm so excited to see where that next transformation comes. So that's my why is to really help people find joy and happiness and success, um, particularly in their work and making sure that they feel good enough, they do what they love, and they also find a lot of success in it, whether they're a small to medium business or whether they work for other people as well. Oh, Shivani, it's been a true joy speaking with you today. You're a very wise person, and I I appreciate you sharing the wisdom with us all. And uh, I wish you a wonderful trip to Nepal. It's been 20 years. I can't wait to find out uh the your response to that uh, experience so enjoy your call to adventure and thank you for being with us today thank you nina thank you it's always a delight talking to you we've been speaking with shivani gupta on the manage self lead others podcast for experienced and aspiring people managers I'm your host, Nina Sunday. Thanks for listening. Contact details are in the show notes. Remember to subscribe and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Catch you next time. Nina Sunday is on a mission to help leaders transform culture. To book Nina Sunday CSP to speak at your conference, visit ninasunday.com to request a proposal. Nina travels from Brisbane, Australia for in-person presentations Australia-wide. Twice certified virtual presenter, Nina Sunday presents virtually, globally, for any time zone. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.